From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Well before the Club Q attack, people believed the suspect was dangerous. Some have asked whether invoking the state's red flag law could have kept guns from the alleged shooter. CPR's Andrew Kenny is reviewing how the law has worked in its three years. I've been reading through court records, and I've found some significant differences in how the red flag law is being used across Colorado. Some of that depends on how local law enforcement views what are officially called extreme risk protection orders. It's creating a big issue because folks are saying this is a violation of our Second Amendment rights. Two attorneys help us navigate the law, reactions to it, and the Club Q case. Red flag laws are one of the relatively few tools that law enforcement have for stopping something before it happens. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Club Q shooting raises questions, chief among them whether the state's red flag law could have been used to avert the attack. Five people were murdered, many more hurt. We're going to dedicate much of today's show to this question. Colorado's ERPO law, which stands for Extreme Risk Protection Order, means a family member or law enforcement officer can ask a judge to keep someone from having guns. Let's begin with CPR's Andrew Kenny. He's reviewing all of Colorado's red flag filings, hundreds of them. This is since the law took effect three years ago. Andy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Remind us how this law was designed to work. So this is a civil process as opposed to a criminal one. So it's not part of you being charged or arrested. Instead, the idea is that a law enforcement officer like a cop or a family member, if they encounter somebody who is seeming to be a risk to themselves or to others, who has guns or is talking about buying guns, then either the law enforcement officer or the person's family member can go to a judge file a form that says why they think this person's a risk, why they shouldn't have guns, and then the judge will decide whether to essentially ban that person from having or purchasing guns for, at first it's only just two weeks, but then it can be extended to a year and then another year. And it is, again, the civil process that leaves judges to decide when people are too dangerous to have guns. But with these weigh-in points to see if circumstances in someone's life have changed. That's right. Okay. Uh, Was there a specific incident that prompted the law? Take us back. Yeah, these have been growing in popularity since the first one was passed in Connecticut more than 20 years ago. 
In Colorado in particular, the red flag law passed in 2019, and it was named in honor of Deputy Zachary Parrish of the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. And Parrish was murdered in this ambush by a man who had a history of mental health issues and who had made some bizarre and kind of troubling, alarming online posts. The law was focused on the question of whether Deputy Parrish could have been saved if this person had been banned from having guns. Quite a few other states also passed these types of laws after the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Florida. When these orders are filed in Colorado, what are some of the reasons? I mean, you laid out that someone might be a threat to themselves or others, but get specific with us given all that you have looked through. So having read through all of them filed through November with my colleague Will Cornelius, we saw everything. There was just every kind of violent and disturbing situation. Um, you know, first of all, a solid portion of them were people who were talking about only hurting themselves who oh. were suicidal. A slightly larger portion were talking about hurting other people. And a select few, a couple dozen, mentioned mass shootings, mentioned attacks several times at grocery stores in particular, but at schools, at workplaces. And then, of course, some in some cases, there was not actually a particular threat, an explicit threat the person made, hmm. but perhaps they had been stockpiling weapons, in some cases dozens and dozens of rifles. Enough that someone was concerned. Yes, and acting in other alarming ways. Um, in those cases, though, you know, the judges sometimes went either way. In some cases, the judge would say, there, there's a lot of guns here, yes, but there's no explicit threat, so I'm not going to ban this person from having guns. In other cases, judges erred more on the side of, I guess, what, what you might call caution in terms of taking away someone's guns, even though they hadn't actually threatened anyone. Okay, so a few key takeaways so far, that these can be based on threats, on people's fears about mm -hmm. someone's behavior. Also, that you reviewed uh, red flag requests that were both granted and denied. Yes. So a really clear picture here emerges. Um, but how might the law have been used to thwart the Club Q suspect? So this is obviously looking retrospectively at decisions that were made. But in the El Paso case, the suspect had an earlier arrest in 2021 yep. where they were accused of holding their family hostage and having a standoff with police. Reportedly, they talked then about carrying out a mass shooting they had guns, they had bomb-making material, and so it would seem to be a textbook case for some of these agencies where they would have, some other law enforcement agencies may have pursued a red flag petition at that point, because again, you have a threat, you have the means to carry it out. Right, the phrase, I might become the next mass killer, apparently mm -hmm. was uttered. Yes. Um, but then you have some other factors to keep in mind, where the El, Ca El Paso County Sheriff's Office which was the arresting agency in that earlier case, has actually never filed one of those petitions, at least in the cases I reviewed. Um, the sheriff there and other authorities have expressed some real reservations about this law, uh, saying that parts of it may be unconstitutional. The DA said that, and the sheriff placed real limits on how his people were going to use it, if at all. But what about this specific case, the Club Q case? So they're not coming out and saying, oh, we didn't file this case because we don't believe in the law. In this case, they're giving a number of different justifications for why they didn't use it in this particular case. In, in 2021, I should say. In the say, 2021 preceding case. Preceding the Club Q shooting. Exactly. Um, one of the reasons they said was that while the criminal trial for that 2021 case was going on, the suspect was already banned from having guns. That's pretty common in these types of cases. But then that criminal case was dismissed 
for lack of cooperation from some of the witnesses, the suspect's family members. And at that point, the ban on the suspect having guns lapsed, and the sheriff's office did not pursue this red flag order, which could have kept them from having guns in the future. And they gave a couple reasons. They said that uh, it was hard to access the records. The records were sealed after the criminal case was filed. And their big, their biggest reason was that they claimed too much time had passed. It had been more than a year when the case was dismissed. It was now 2022 summer. They said they just couldn't prove that it was going to be an ongoing threat. And so they, they didn't bother filing one again. They, they did not try. They did not try. One. We're going to go in greater depth into this question, to these details with uh, some legal experts in just a bit. Uh, Andy, can you say in general whether it is most often a family member making a red flag request or law enforcement? Yes. So as we were saying, both of those parties, those are the ones allowed to start this process. Just more than half the time, it is a person's family members or some other individual trying to start this process. And a little less than half the time, it is police or sheriffs, sometimes the Colorado State Patrol. Okay. And did you look at whether a judge is more likely to grant such an order if the request comes from family versus law enforcement? Yes. What we found is that individuals are pretty unlikely to succeed when they file these. Um, The success rate, I think, is under 20% if you are a family member or some other. Oh. There's a couple reasons for that. People... You know, most people don't have legal training. They don't know how to read the law and see what exactly the law wants you to say. And in some cases, individuals are just filing cases that are not relevant to red flag. There's no, they don't there's have no merits. Guns. There's no threat. You know, in a few cases, they're they're just uh, harassing almost the respondent, and those cases get dismissed pretty quickly. Mm. Law enforcement only tend to take these up if they are pretty confident. Denver, when they file these, for example, the Denver Police Department has well over a 90% success rate in filing these. Um, in judges granting the red flag request mm-hmm. when law enforcement request them. Yeah. So the point is, if you have a police officer who's going to cooperate with you and look over your case and help you file them, you're going to be a lot more likely to succeed. We know, uh, Andrew Kenny, that El Paso County officials... Uh, were opposed to this red flag gun law, reluctant to use it, calling it a violation of Second Amendment rights. Uh, And so I gather from place to place, given the politics of that place, the use of the law has differed. Indeed. And it's actually, it's, it's really different because what we find is that Denver Police Department's the only one that's truly, really embraced this law. They filed 10 times more of these by my count than literally any other law enforcement agency in the state. They filed about 90 over the course of these couple few years that it's been in effect. And some other metro departments, you know, Lakewood Police have filed a good handful. Um, But then when you go across the state, even to liberal areas like Aurora and then to conservative places like El Paso County, you just don't see this law being used one or two times per agency, if anything. And in huge swaths of the state, it's just never been used. No one's ever filed a petition under this law. You are listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And in the context of the Club Q shooting, which killed five in Colorado Springs late last year, we are talking about 
Colorado's red flag gun law, whether it might have prevented the attack on Club Q uh, and getting to know this law and how it's being used a little better. Uh, Andy Kenny has looked at hundreds of filings under the red flag law and is giving us a picture of what has emerged. Uh, can you tell us whether the law has done what it's designed to do, and that is stop someone from harming themselves or others? That's tough because it's so hypothetical. It's it's the opposite of the normal criminal justice system. <laughs> Instead of prosecuting something after the fact, you're trying to stop something in the future. Yeah. But I did read one of these cases just the other week about a suicidal man where a year later where they were reassessing the case, his family in the court records was saying that he never wanted to own a gun again. He was done. He was so glad. And you see this often with suicidal ideations that he made it past the crisis point hmm. and he thinks he had his life saved by not having access to guns. There's also been cases where people talked about these mass shootings, as I was saying, and obviously those didn't end up happening uh, for the most part. And so in those cases, arguably, it did make a difference. Uh, but then there are also a lot of gray areas where, again, it's not clear if the person really was a threat or what they would have done. And, and in some cases, we'll just never know. Okay. So we can say that it has worked in some capacity. Yes. I think it's fair to say. Um there are other tools to prevent gun violence. Uh, while we are focused on the red flag law in this program, we should at least acknowledge the ecosystem here. Yeah, there there are other very similar laws and tools. There's a federal law which says you can't have a gun for at least three years if you're forced into mental health care, if you're committed to an institution. Um, you're barred from having a gun after committing most felonies or being convicted of them, rather. And Colorado has banned people from having guns after convictions for certain domestic violence acts. On the other hand, Colorado has not embraced some changes that are popular in blue states, like requiring gun permits and gun licensing more strictly. Andy, thanks so much for this. Thank you. And I know this is uh, something you'll continue to report on. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny has reviewed every single use of Colorado's red flag gun law since it went to effect in 2020. Now, let's bring a pair of legal experts into the conversation about red flag laws and what tools exist that might have prevented the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, November 19th. Whitney Trailer is a Denver attorney and Nine News legal analyst. Whitney, thank you for being with us. Sure, it's good to be here. Ian Farrell is an associate law professor at the University of Denver with expertise in criminal law. Ian, welcome to our studio. Thanks, great to be here. You've both been following the Club Q case, and we've actually had our own Andy Kenny stick around, given all his reporting on these so-called extreme risk protection orders. Okay, Ian Farrell, in 2021, the suspect's relatives, grandparents included, claimed they'd been threatened and kidnapped. Prosecutors said they moved to dismiss the charges against Anderson Lee Aldrich because the family refused to testify in that case. Were there other charges prosecutors might have filed, other people affected by the 2021 incident uh, that, you know, could have been involved and led to a trial, possibly a conviction? I think that's right. I think that um, in general, prosecutors in Colorado, perhaps prosecutors across the country, um, in my view, generally overcharge and uh, bring as many charges as possible for an individual incident. And so one of the things that struck me about this case was that they uh, didn't seem to do that. So, for example, they potentially, I don't know uh, 
as many of the facts as the district attorney would have, but they could have potentially charged with possessing explosives, uh, which is a, uh, a felony. Uh, at least one of the guns that he had uh, was not uh, appropriately registered. It was a ghost gun. That's also a crime. Uh, and even when there was the standoff with the police when the SWAT team arrived, that's also potentially uh, a crime of um, of interfering with the police in the uh, in the uh, discharge of their duties. Mm-hmm. And and none of those were none of those were charged. And none of those would have obviously fallen as a result of not having the testimony of the grandparents. It occurs to me as well that in 2021, as a result of the threat, other homes were evacuated. I think something like 10 homes were evacuated. Those are people involved as well. That's right. There's there's also um, potential charges such as threatening to harm. So it's a first degree assault to threaten a police officer, for instance, with a deadly weapon. And it's also a crime to uh, threaten other people. Uh, and so there were a multitude of other crimes that at least in potentially the prosecutors could have charged. And again, in, in, uh, in general, I am not in favor of this sort of overcharging that often happens, including in um, El Paso County. And so one of the things that sort of creates the most dissonance for me about this case is that it seems to be inconsistent with what prosecutors often do. Hmm. And indeed, it seems inconsistent with what uh, the prosecutors did uh, with this suspect after the the shooting itself. So um, many people died in that incident. It was a horrific tragedy. Um, he was charged with 305 different counts, including five counts of first-degree murder, which would have resulted in, if, he's, if they're found guilty, resulted in five life terms. So that's an example of where the uh, prosecutor has sought out every possible charge that could be laid. Hundreds of charges, and you're contrasting that with the 2021 case. What what do you make of this uh, question of overcharging, undercharging, Whitney? Well, I think it's a great point that Ian makes. And I think that the prosecutor, when you hear the statements coming from the, both the sheriff and the prosecutor, they're saying... We did everything we could. We charged as much as we could. We couldn't get the grandparents to testify. And the issue was in January, they had the arraignment. So they had to go to trial within six months. And the problem was they said the grandparents wouldn't cooperate. They were in Florida. And as Ian points out, well, if they had made these other charges, they could have potentially Uh, got a conviction or at least went to trial. That would have kept the case alive. That's exactly right. And what's interesting about it is because there was no charge, because the defendant didn't go to trial and the charges were dismissed, there was the, the case was sealed. And so that's why the DA was saying, well, we couldn't have used any of that. And earlier Ian and I were talking and I said, well, they could have gotten creative. They could have attempted to do something is 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 my position. And so in addition to sort of undercharging, they, they didn't try any legal creative strategies to try and somehow um, get a conviction or even go to trial. Once again, for someone who said that they might become the next mass killer, Andy Kenny. I just wanted to add that the sealing process took about a month. The request to seal was filed, and it wasn't executed for another month after this criminal case was dismissed, which, to my reading, gave another window of opportunity to file the ERPO petition. Well, let's get to that specifically. So 
to the fundamental question uh, whether or not you could have gotten a conviction on the 2021 case, the year prior to the Club Q shooting. Could you have gotten a red flag order? Uh, we know, as Andy Kenny has told us, that the El Paso County Sheriff did not try. What do you think, Ian? Well, I, th- I think uh, one way of framing this, to be honest, is if there's any case that um, screams red flag, it's this case. And so uh, in order to get the extreme risk protection order, uh, you initially have to have a preponderance of the evidence demonstrating that uh, the person is a danger. Mm-hmm. And I think here there, there is that. Not overwhelming, uh, but a preponderance. Of. A preponderance of the evidence. Uh, and then in order for that 14-day initial order to be extended out to a year, there must be clear and convincing evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's more than a preponderance, but it's still less than beyond reasonable doubt. But again, I think that the facts here do seem to indicate that he was a threat. But there are there. There's a couple, and I I do agree with that. That the, particularly about getting creative and try at least trying to get it. But there's two arguments to kind of counter that. One is that in the 2021, because of the arrest and the charges that there was a mandatory protection order. So his guns were seized. The guns still, there was an AR, and then there was the ghost gun Mm -hmm. that they believe he made with a 3D printer. A gun without a serial number. That's exactly right. Both of those weapons are still with law enforcement. So the question is, and as I understand it, I think it was another ghost gun that was used in the Club Q shooting, but I'm not certain of that. But certainly the guns in the 2021 incident were not given back. So some people said, well, if he didn't get them legally, then uh, the ERPO wouldn't matter. And they had the mandatory protection order in place anyway. So he could only for as long as that case endured. And when that that's case correct. stopped, then that and order the, ceased. That's correct. Uh-huh. And that order ceased in June um, of 2022. I mean, it's a fascinating question. Andy Kenny, this notion of ghost guns, serial yes. numberless guns in the context of a red flag law. Yeah, and I should point out, I don't think that authorities have confirmed all the details of which guns were used in the attack on Club Q. But anyway, to Whitney's point, there is this really big question of how much can you stop? How much does putting a simple on paper legal limit actually do to prevent someone from getting guns when they are bound in determined to do so. I mean, El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder says a conviction in that 2021 case, quote, is really the only thing that could have stopped Anderson Lee Aldridge. But what's your sense, Whitney Trailer, on whether the El Paso County Sheriff ought to have at least tried on the red flag front? Well, the argument, that's a legitimate argument that the mandatory protection was in place, so it would have been redundant. But as to your point, the whatever happened in that 2021 case, if there was the extreme risk protection order in place, that still would have been in place. So my position is both the sheriff and the DA should have done more, could have done more. Now, would it have prevented the shooting? We don't know. But would he have still been involved in the system? And as you pointed out, when in 2021, he engages his own family in this way and then claims to be or want to be the next mass killer, um, that's that's important information. And that's something I think 
the authorities should have been a little more diligent with. Important information. The question is, is it a preponderance, as we heard from Ian? And it can be a vague standard. So I'll point out that the authorities were, they seemed well justified in saying that it was redundant. They didn't want to file two different gun bans on this person at the same time. That's common in these cases, Mm. in my experience. And then by the time the other gun ban expired, by the time summer 2022 comes around and now there's no gun restrictions on the suspect, the sheriff's office argues it was just too late. Too much time had passed. We weren't going to be able to prove in court that this person was still a threat. And that's just an open question we'll never know the answer to because they didn't file that petition. They didn't ask a judge. A judge never weighed in on it. But if you were a member of the SWAT team that responded to the incident in 2021, uh, you know, wondering whether you'd return home to your family that mm-hmm. night, uh, wouldn't that be a, a fairly compelling argument for this person being a danger, Ian? And that gets back to the origins of the ERPO law. So um, the law is um, was passed in honor of a, um, a police officer. So, D- Douglas County deputy. And, and so that's, that's one of the things that I think um, is important to understand here is that police have dangerous jobs. What's the main reason it's so dangerous? Because any interaction they have with an individual could be um, an individual who's armed. Mm. Uh, that is unique to the United States. And uh, that's the one thing that to me makes me understand why police in the U.S. may um, react differently to police in other countries. And so if anyone is being protected by this, it's, uh, as the law indicates, it's family members, people who live with them, and law enforcement. And law enforcement. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Uh, Andrew Kenny from our public affairs team joins me as we speak with Ian Farrell, associate law professor at DU who specializes in criminal law, and Whitney Trailer, Nine News legal analyst, about the Club Q shooting and specifically the role of the red flag gun law in the question that we're all uh, asking. Could it have been used to prevent the attack on Club Q, which killed five and hurt so many others? And one thing we know, uh, Whitney Trailer, especially from Andy's analysis is that the application of the red flag law is really uh, spotty in some places. And in Denver, for instance, it's used, it's invoked quite a bit. Uh, This is not purely a liberal conservative question, by the way, because there are more liberal leaning cities, Andy has found, Mm -hmm. that file these far less than Denver. What do you make of the uneven application of ERPO? Well, it's interesting because I looked yesterday and there's a county in Florida that has used it hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these different, uh, you have some sheriffs that say we're constitutional sheriffs and you have Second Amendment sanctuary counties and things like that. And I just think that it doesn't make sense how adamant the Second Amendment folks are and how sparse this is being used because they're saying you're taking away people's weapons before they've committed a crime. But when you balance it with the safety concerns, and particularly when you have so many suicides, and I would liken this to when you get a typical restraining order, you go the first step, somebody's threatening you, you feel dangerous, you go and you get a restraining order ex parte 
on your own without that person being there. And if the judge grants it, you show that, yes, there is a, a legitimate um, danger, that you're fearful. Well, the court can grant that ex parte. And then when the person comes in, the question is, does it become a permanent restraining mm-hmm. order? What I hear you saying, Whitney Trailer, is that culturally, we seem to have embraced the notion of the traditional restraining order. But that has not um, applied the use of it, I guess the comfort with it, to the extreme risk protection orders. You see a difference there. Mm-hmm. Ian, what do you make of the culture here? Uh, so I completely agree. Um, one of the things that's been fascinating to me um, uh, in my time here is the the Second Amendment exceptionalism. And that, to be honest, has been embraced by the U.S. Supreme Court. So in the recent decision of uh, New York uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, where they struck down a New York law, um, the law in New York, which had been in place for over 100 years, um, required people to show that they had a special reason for carrying a firearm. And the to me, the important thing here is the reasoning that the court employed in that case. Mm. So um, they said that we are not going to do any balancing. Rather, the question is, on the text of the amendment, does this law intrude? And it will only be permissible under the Second Amendment if that law or an analogous law was present in 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified. That originalist view. Yes, a a very sort of uh, extreme originalism. And one of the things that's interesting about that, other amendments have some form of balancing. So even the even the, the laws under the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment and the uh, the Fifth Amendment about equal protection, if there is a law that explicitly and intentionally discriminates on the basis of race, that is not automatically struck down. Instead, there are shades of gray considered. There are shades of gray. They they do an analysis and they say, is there a compelling enough interest? Before we go, I just want to uh, talk about some of maybe the politics uh, and the political effects of this. So right now, um, just family members and a member of someone's household or law enforcement can petition to do a red flag order. Lawmakers are considering adding other people who could request this. Teachers, for instance. Andy, how much do you think what happened at Club Q in El Paso County, that 2021 case, will play into the coming session, legislative session, uh, the state capitol here. Yeah, I think that'll be huge. The governor's already explicitly embraced that idea of adding more parties who can file these. And I think the logic is that if law enforcement's not going to help, then open it up and allow other people to intervene. And I think that'll just be one of several potential law uh, gun reforms that we see. And that that makes a lot of sense. Some states have where it can be a principal of a school, it can be a therapist, things like that. And that really does make sense. And I I want the the listeners to really understand there is due process. You have to go, as Ian said, and show by a preponderance of the evidence that this is going – that you think this is going to happen. Judges deny these. It's not an automatic, uh, an automatic order. And that is what we have seen in Andy's reporting. Thanks to both of you so much. Whitney Trailer, Denver attorney, legal analyst for Nine News, and Ian Farrell, associate professor at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. And Colorado Matters continues in just a little bit with an emergency physician 
who studies gun violence as an epidemic, and that goes well beyond mass shootings. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Fraser, elevation 8,600 feet, gets below freezing on more than 300 nights a year. It's recorded a freeze for every single date of the year, and its growing season lasts just a week, thanks to cold air that gets trapped in the bowl-shaped valley where it sits. In 1956, Fraser called itself the Icebox of the Nation, eight years after International Falls, Minnesota adopted the title because there was money in it as a marketing tool. Meteorologists would say neither place deserves the slogan, but the rivalry persisted until International Falls paid Fraser $2,000 to drop its claim. International Falls got the trademark, then forgot to renew it. Fraser leaped on the opportunity, but was countersued. And though it ultimately lost the legal battle to be the icebox of the nation, it could compete with Alamosa and Gunnison to be the icebox of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Coble and Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now an emergency physician who researches gun violence as a national epidemic. CU medical professor Dr. Emmy Betts also sees this firsthand in the ER. Mass shootings, she's quick to note, are a relatively small part of the picture. And Dr. Betts, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Harkening back to another deadly mass shooting, the 2012 attack on the Aurora Movie Theater, many of the victims were treated at CU Anschutz, your campus. Colorado didn't have a red flag law then, but there were many warning signs about the shooter as well in the Aurora Theater shooting case. What is it like for you to see this continue? I I think for those of us in emergency medicine, doctors, nurses, techs, everyone working in the ER, um, you know, we do this job because we want to help people in their worst moments, heart attacks, strokes, and so forth. I think, though, seeing violence is different because it is preventable and it is just so awful. And so whether that's the shootings that we see, it feels like almost now every day that are happening in Aurora and Denver and often involve youth, certainly after big events like the Aurora shooting, or I imagine for the emergency providers in Colorado Springs who cared for Club Q victims, it's an extra layer of frustration and anger that it keeps happening mm. um, and that we're seeing people's lives really torn apart by these awful injuries and that, you know, thankfully we have great medical care and people often survive, but but with significant physical and emotional trauma. You know, the word I keyed on most in what you just said there is that you see it as preventable. And so that, I think, gets to the core of why uh, you see this is a public health issue, is that there is prevention to be done here. Absolutely. And I think it's a public health issue also because it is a health issue, not just a legal issue. You know, when we think about, again, the physical and emotional health outcomes related to gun violence, um, absolutely, we should be thinking about um, all of the ways we can prevent these issues. Surely the impact on the victims, their families and friends is the most direct. But I do wonder what the mental health implications are for medical workers who deal with these mass casualty situations. Uh, I think, sadly, more and more of us all over the country now have been through this. You know, I have colleagues in cities in many places who've been involved in different mass shootings. I think people 
handle it differently. I think we saw, I saw after the Aurora shooting, you know, some colleagues who transitioned out of the emergency department, they just didn't, couldn't really be in that environment anymore and oh, found really? other, other, other places in healthcare to work, mm-hmm. other people who are still there. And I think found other ways to process the, the grief and the anger, the emotions. I think thankfully in medicine, it feels like even in the, you know, decade plus that I've been doing this, it feels like we're getting better at understanding that we as providers need to process our own traumas as well. And I think COVID helped us realize that even more. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be stoic all the time. Right. In uh, fact, if you just push it all down, it eventually bubbles up. <laughs> mass shootings are indeed relatively rare. But in 2022, Colorado saw the most people injured in mass gun violence in a single year. And that's using the definition of four people or more hurt, not including the attacker. Do you have a sense of why that's happening? Uh, that is a great question. And one, I don't know. And I think it's one of the one of the things that I and, and colleagues are trying to figure out why. I think we know generally violence increased during the pandemic and, and all of the other issues that were happening in the sort of 2020-2022 era. Um, so we saw homicides go up by almost a third nationwide, for example. So the sort of daily violence as well, and sometimes those are included in mass shootings. That's right. Um, we, I also want to acknowledge something like half of mass shootings involve domestic violence somehow. So that if we think about not the mass shootings of random strangers, but but cases that are involving family conflict and domestic violence, um, that also increased during the pandemic. Yeah, and that's um, another dimension then of prevention. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. So these are economic issues, these are domestic issues, and they are social issues. How does this sound, look, and feel in the emergency room? And why don't we start with people who are killed or injured by others involving guns before we talk about suicide? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes people don't even make it to us, but I think we we often see people who have been shot and injured, and, and some of them do unfortunately pass away in the emergency department or in the hospital. Um, oftentimes, though, there are things we can do either in the ER or in the hospital to save their lives. And so the approach to the care of an injured patient is very um algorithmic, that we, we have a lot of science understanding exactly what we need to do and in what order. And yeah. so we work in large teams that are sort of choreographed almost between emergency medicine and surgeons and nurses and techs. And a lot happens very quickly. And it, it probably looks chaotic to outsiders, but it's actually um, almost scripted in terms of what we're doing. So I think what we're seeing, what we see on a regular basis at the university, at, at Denver Health, at other big urban trauma centers are a lot of youth who've been injured by shootings. Um, we know what, that, what ages are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, so sort of young teen to mid to mid twenties, I would say. Um, and I think we know from data nationwide and in Colorado that youth of color are are disproportionately affected. That the the rate of gun violence and homicide um, in communities of color is much higher. Um, so, particularly youth in Denver, Aurora, again, urban other urban areas, they may or may not have been involved in some kind of drug or criminal or other gang activity that led to it. They may have just been bystanders. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you, yeah. Well, just hearing you talk, I feel grateful that medicine is better at treating gunshot wounds. And at the same time, what a sad thing to get good at. It's, it's awful. And I think the thing I am 
happy to see finally happening is that I think we in medicine and public health are getting better at understanding how to prevent that cycle of violence. So many large hospitals, mine included, now have what are called violence intervention programs. So a youth, a young adult who has been injured or is at risk of being injured can be enrolled in a free program that's kind of like a wraparound program that helps navigate the medical system if they need that, but also get at the root problems. Is it that they need job training? Is it that they're having issues at home? Do they need help getting back into school? The, the, those sort of underlying determinants of the violence. Because one is that's not what just released. Need. Exactly. Huh. That we want to prevent them from being injured in the future. About 75% of gun deaths in Colorado are due to suicide. We, we have to talk about that. Um, beyond red flag laws which, again, are designed not only for those who might commit violence against others but themselves. But beyond uh, red flag laws, what more can be done to keep guns away from people who are considering ending their own lives? Yeah, thank you for, for bringing it up because I think we see a lot of individuals with suicide risk in the ER. We don't see many people who have attempted suicide with a gun because they die. Um, and I think we that really... That is, suicide by gun is often effective. About 90% of the time, the person will die. And yet we know that a suicidal crisis is often brief in the space of hours to days or even minutes. That it's a breakup, a financial issue. It's sort of when someone feels like there's no hope and they're in that very dark place, if they reach for a gun, they're likely to to die and not have a not have a second chance. And so that's why it's so important that we talk about the intersection between guns and suicide. If you're worried about someone in your family, if you're worried about yourself, probably one of the best things you can do is make sure that the guns are locked up or inaccessible. Storage. I know this has been your drumbeat for a long time. Exactly. And sometimes off-site storage. Exactly. And yes, you still need the appropriate mental health treatment and so forth, but you need a safe environment while you're getting that. And so, yes, we've been doing a lot of work looking at out-of-home storage. So many retailers, firearm retailers... And law enforcement agencies will offer storage. You even developed a map of this. We did. The map is online. Uh, the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition, which is a, a, a volunteer group, we host the map on our website. Um, and it's really just listing places that are willing to consider storage. Always call ahead before you go. Um, don't just show up with guns. But, don't yeah. just show up with guns. <laughs> uh, before we go, you, uh, I, I know, have embarked on some research about Alzheimer's, dementia, and gun ownership. In just a few seconds, do you want to talk to us about why that intersection is important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm 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 passionate about ensuring that older adults have autonomy and independence and are engaged in their own decision making as long as possible. I think it's really important that we support healthy aging. But we also know that um, dementia poses a risk for suicide, but also for unintentional harm to other people. And so we've been doing work looking at how can we support older firearm owners in thinking ahead, what do they want to happen with their firearms? Hopefully also then perhaps they get out of the the guns or moved out of the home perhaps a little earlier. Like an advanced firearm directive? Uh, Exactly. And actually, we we made a free website. It's called Firearm Life Plan. People can go to. It has some conversation starters and worksheets to help people think through where their guns are stored, who they want to give them to, and a place to write down memories. Thanks for helping us understand just how multidimensional this conversation is. Dr. Emmy Betts, professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She also heads the Firearm Prevention Initiative at CU Anschutz. 
The federal government is in the midst of an investigation into the more than 400 Native American boarding schools that operated in the U.S. for more than a century and a half. Many students were taken from their families and sent to the schools in what historians call cultural genocide. Now there's a push in some classrooms to confront this violent past and reclaim education for Native people. CPR's Stina Sieg reports from one college on the Western Slope. Jocelyn Lee's first experience of science was as a little girl on the Navajo Nation. And it was really with my grandma, my my Nellie. She helped me look at different plants. And this was when we were herding goats. She would eventually fall in love with chemistry. Lee now teaches it here at Fort Lewis College in Durango. <laughs> this is... Um, here, I think I had an amino acid. So she rifles through a box of blocks students use to construct models of molecules. Lee is the department's first ever Native professor at a school where almost half of undergraduates are Indigenous. In 1911, Colorado began offering Native people free tuition at Fort Lewis as part of an agreement with the federal government, which had forced Native people from these lands years before. Sometimes in lab, Lee will hear students teasing each other in Diné, her native language. She encourages it. Just like welcome that that's a safe space for them to um, be able to use some of their vocabulary from their own uh, indigenous language to then be able to be themselves in lab. Native students used to be beaten for speaking their language at some boarding schools. Fort Lewis operated as a boarding school from 1891 to 1910 and became a college in the 1930s. When Lee was an undergrad here, she'd walk past historical markers that whitewashed the school's history, describing it as a place where Native people, quote, developed excellent skills. She was shocked to find these were still up on a clock tower in the heart of campus when she returned to teach a few years ago. I was thinking of how I would feel as a student seeing these images and what they depicted. And, um, you know, I don't want another student to see that. The administration ultimately agreed. After Lee wrote the college's president and the school held more than a year of listening sessions, the markers were removed. But the history of Native American boarding schools still hangs over the U.S. education system. Fort Lewis's Majel Boxer says one of her grandfathers actually escaped from one of those schools in Montana. Just as a family, we're, we're proud of him. <laughs> but Boxer, associate professor of Native American and Indigenous Studies, knows most Native children were not that lucky. And likely all of her Native students are descendants of boarding school survivors. She says in order for them to succeed... They need to feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to college. Where they don't feel like they have to live in two worlds the way former boarding school students had to do. Only about 6% of Fort Lewis's faculty are Native. But Boxer, an enrolled citizen of the Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux tribes, says they're working to indigenize instruction here. She makes a point to draw on her students' own Native knowledge and allow them more absences to go home for ceremonies and family matters. Today, as contemporary Native peoples, we need to see education not through that adversarial lens, but to see education as a tool, and the tool is for our own goals. And every student I speak with at Fort Lewis has the same goal 
to return home to help their community. Justin Dash is twirling a lasso in the parking lot and practicing roping a plastic bright orange steer. There. Dash, who says he learned to ride a horse before he could walk, started the school's rodeo club. He's studying to be a physical therapist and dreams of returning to his hometown on the Navajo reservation, Tuba City, Arizona. Recently, we had our Navajo Nation fair, and there was only two EMTs parked there. Um, lots of injuries with the bull riding and all that, so I'd love to go back and help with all of that. He says money is one of the biggest things keeping indigenous people from a degree. I've seen people grow up in shacks, sheds, broken down trailers. And some of his friends who did make it to college had to drop out to help their families. He thinks that maybe more scholarships will help dismantle the mentality he felt surrounded by growing up. My family didn't go to college, so I'm not going to college. Dash is a first-generation college student and says he feels blessed his parents can help pay his way. But Byron Tapate, director of the Fort Lewis Student Involvement Center, knows many young Native people don't have that support. In addition to Fort Lewis, a growing number of universities are now offering tuition waivers to Native students. But Tapate says that's only part of the equation. To provide the cultural sustenance that Indigenous students need in higher education, in college, is another thing. The first in his family to graduate college, he did not feel prepared for college growing up on the Navajo Nation. Tapate says universities need to reach out to prospective Native students more. And once they're on campus, they need to be supported and embraced for who they are. If you're going to make a commitment to serving Indigenous students, it doesn't stop at enrollment. And it takes acknowledging the painful past at places like the Fort Lewis Indian School, which eventually grew into Fort Lewis College. Its original buildings still stand on about 6,000 lonely acres outside of Durango. In warmer months, classes are held here and produce is harvested. As Heather Shotton, Fort Lewis's vice president of diversity affairs, steps onto the snowy grounds, she feels a sadness for what happened here. But not just that. With many of our programs and with our college today, I feel a, a sense of hope in the reclamation that I see happening. Reclamation of an educational system that once tried to erase the identity of an entire people, including Shotton's people. She's a citizen of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. Her aunts, uncle, and grandparents were boarding school survivors. I think about them all the time. They give her strength as she works within higher education to heal the past and look toward the future, a process that she says may never be finished. In Hesperus, I'm Stina Sieg. CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.